some of the characteristics of God the Father here, uh, we, we want to kind of understand that when we talk about the characteristics or the attributes of God, we're speaking of the qualities that constitute what He is, who He is, and His very nature. Okay? Um, there's no denying this. All right? Okay? So, the first thing we're going to look at, and I'm just going to, it's kind of like this checklist here. So the first one is that God the Father is a spirit. Okay, uh, Two references here. There's many more references, by the way. Uh, I just, I'll have a reference on the right here for you, and then kind of some, some main points on the left. Uh, but he's immaterial, he's invisible, has no physical makeup. Uh, we see in 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And of course, John 4.24 says God is spirit. That word spirit is ghost. Uh, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Um, so we, we have this idea that God the Father is a spirit. Okay? Uh, we do know, though, from Revelation and him revealing himself, he reveals himself in different forms. Uh, theophanies being um, pretty much the idea of God coming down, you know, God in the fiery bush, God as the fire at night, uh, pillar of smoke by day. Um, so we have those ideas. But the ultimate theophanies uh, I wanted to get us to was Philippians 2.7, where he humbled himself and took on the form of man, uh, the bondservant. So that is the ultimate. He came down as God the Son, you know, Jesus, which, uh, as I said, uh, that's the next um, one that we'll be covering. So, um, and I was talking to, to Beard a little bit after this last week, and he, him and I got talking about Theophanes and Christophanes, I think is how you pronounce that. Um, and Theophanes really point to God, and, and Christophanes points more to Christ and just a picture of Christ throughout the Bible, uh, because we know that Jesus is throughout the entire Bible. Um, but when you look at Theophanies, it's more of just God the Father. Um, although, he does come down as God the Son. So, uh, it's kind of interchangeable, really. So, um, but he is a spirit. And if you have any just questions or comments, just shoot your hand up and I'll be quiet. <laughs> the next one is, he is immutable. God is immutable. That means unchangeable. Now, this is very, very important to understand because this affects all of his other characteristics. Okay, um, James 1.17, I have to go to James, so I, I put that in there. Uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which, uh, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, a lot of people say, but God changes his mind. Yes. But when he changes his mind, it is always in relation to his character, okay? Because you have to understand, if he changes his mind, he's either going to uh, display, you know, judgment, right? Or he might extend grace. So he could go either way right? because of who he is. So when we say, you know, God's mind changed, that's not changing his characteristics at all, right? Um, because he is unchangeable. So one time, uh, we see him pronounce judgment for the city of Nineveh. 
right? That's why Jonah didn't want to go. Uh, when they repented, he had mercy and removed the judgment. Uh, this does not contradict, but rather reflects his characteristics in that he is just and merciful. However, you know, we see his judgment pronounced on Sodom and Gomorrah and, and so forth. So when you see this, it's not, I, I just want to make sure that, you know, when somebody says, well, he changed his mind, that's not the same as his characteristics. Uh, Psalm 147.5, one of the best things that we can kind of put in our brains is that his understanding is beyond us, right? It says, great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. If you remember, I had some disclaimers at the beginning of this whole study where we could do a comprehensive study of this and we would just hit the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, it is just, we, we don't really understand he will reveal to us what he wants, right, as far as um, his purpose and his will, but never contradicts uh, who he is and his nature. Um, he can't deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13, um, because he is always faithful. So if he makes a promise, he cannot break that promise because he can't deny that. All right? uh, his sovereign plans and his promises are always unchangeable so if there's a promise that he makes he is going to fulfill it all right and that's where we have all those covenants and why they are so important all right so he is immutable next one we have god is person this might be a little hard for us to understand because if god is a spirit how could he be a person but when we talk about a person uh, they define this as, an, uh, theologians typically define it as an individual being with a personality, self-awareness, and a rationality demonstrated through a mind, emotions, or will. Right? In Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. So when we're talking about in his own image, we're talking about his, um, his mind, his emotions, and his will. Right? So uh, he created them male and female, he created them, right. in case any of you were confused about that. Um, God definitely has an intellect. In Psalm 139, 17 and James 3, 17, uh, we see that he has this intellect. Go to uh, Psalms 139, 17. We're going to be in Psalms a lot because I believe <laughs> to know David pretty much laid out all the characteristics of God throughout all the Psalms. So if you want to know God as a person, read the Psalms. I've never done an extensive uh, study of Psalms. would love to, but it might take a couple years. <laughs> but Psalms 139, verse 17. So when we're thinking about him having an intellect or a mind, Psalm 139, 17 says, How precious to me. Are your thoughts, O oh God? How vast is the sum of them? Right? God has thoughts. He has a mind. Okay. Um, I mean, after all, he created everything, right? And how beautiful it is. So, I mean, his mind must be amazing, right? Um, but there's other verses. So, again, I, I this is just one or two. Uh, James 3.17 is another one. We're not going to go there because I want to stay in Psalms. All right. Uh, of emotions. Go to Psalm 78, 
So God showing emotions, we know that he showed a lot of emotions, and I'm going to run down through a few of uh, these after we're done talking about this one. Psalm 78, 41 says, Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the Holy One of Israel. Now, I had to look up the word vexed, and really, um, kind of, the word means annoyed. <laughs> I looked it up, and uh, because he's tired. Like, like you can, can you imagine the Israelites? I mean, he's, you know, just demonstrating his power. He's saving them. And they're just, you know, doing their own thing, testing him. And here, you know, David's kind of getting to a point where, you know, why do his people keep testing him? And he's like, well, God's getting annoyed, right? <laughs> so he has this uh, emotion. Uh, jealousy can be seen in Exodus 20, verse 5. Uh, joy in Jeremiah 32, 41. Uh, grief, uh, Genesis 6, 6. Uh, he laughs. Go to Psalm 2.4. I think a lot of us can, can uh, remind ourselves that God laughs if we, if we look for the, some of these verses. Psalm 2.4. says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Right? So he laughs. Yes, you know, it might be because of our stupidity, whatever. Um, but I can just imagine, you know, every time I make a mistake or do something stupid, you know, God's chuckling like, Matt, <laughs> why are you doing that again? <laughs> right. Um, but he does. He laughs and not always, you know, at the foolish. He doesn't always laugh at the foolish. Um, but he does show compassion in Psalms 135, 14 um, and Judges 2:18. So he shows emotions. So God is person because he has a mind. And he has emotions. God is also a person because he has a will, right? Romans 12, uh, 1 to 2, we're supposed to be living sacrifices, right? And then what does it call us to do in Romans 2, 2, right? Conform to the will of God, everything that is pleasing to God, and, and live as living sacrifices for him to do the will of God. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 18 we're supposed to give thanks in all things. That's the will of God. 1 Peter 2.15, we're to uh, do good. His will is for us to do good so that it silences the ignorance of foolish people. Okay? That's his will. Uh, two, uh, 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient and we should, uh, and he's patient because his will is that none should perish. Um, he wants to save every last person alive. And obviously, you know, the revealing and, and, you know, those that seek him will find him. Those that don't seek him, unfortunately, will not find him. Um, so, yes, God is a person because he has a mind, he has emotions, and he has a will. Uh, now, no one doubts that, you know, God, you know, came down as Jesus, right? Um, and again, that's Pastor Brad's job to, to teach that uh, in a couple weeks uh, and understand that part of the Trinity and kind of connect it back to this. Um, so that'll be fun to hear. Uh, but the Bible teaches that God exists in three persons, and this is probably the only little Trinity thing you're going to get today, is that all parts of the Trinity are persons. Okay, all right. They all have a mind, they all have emotions, and they all have a will. So just bear with me as I go through these 
God the Father is a person with a mind. We already went through that, emotions and a will. God the Son is a person with a mind. Luke 2.52, it says he grew in stature, right? Um, and uh, he found favor before both God and man. So he had a mind. Uh, God the Son has emotions. John 11.35, Jesus wept, shortest verse, which the teens all knew, by the way. Uh, I was proud of them. And then a will, Galatians 5.17. Uh, God the Holy Spirit is a person with a mind. Uh, you can see that in Romans 8, 27. He has emotions in Ephesians 4, 30, where it says, um, do not quench the spirit. Okay, um, And then a will in Galatians 5, 17. So all three have a mind, emotions, and a will, which are characteristics of uh, personal qualities. Um, so that's about as deep as I'm going to go right now with the Trinity. All right, so God is, in fact, person. Right. God is eternal. This is probably my favorite part of this whole, and I, most of my notes are, are on this slide. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. Uh, but what I want to focus on is go to Exodus 3, chapter 14 and 15, and I will go a little deeper in the name of God uh, in this one, just because it's, I, I can't do it otherwise. I can't do it justice. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Uh, this is probably my, not my favorite name. It might, might be the third. Um, just because of what it entails. Uh, in here we have, you know, the burning bush. One of the theophanies where God is talking to Moses. And in verse tw uh, 12, and God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it, it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Now what you have to understand here is that Moses just asked God what his name is. Okay. Who are, what are you called? Who are you? Right? What is your identity? One of the most important things that students have, even you, is that somebody knows your name. When they see you, they will say hi, right? That's, that's important to people. So in the same context, Moses is saying, what is your name, right? Who should I say sent me? And his answer, when you look at it, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, when he uses I am or Yahweh, which is referring to the self-existent one, the one that has always been, uh, in the New Testament, in John chapter 8, 57 to 58, when Jesus is there and the Pharisees are trying to trick him and ask him, you know, like, what are, who are you? You know, are you actually God? And his answer is, I tell you the truth, um, I am. And before, I, uh, he said, I saw Abraham, right? Which is in that context, he's saying that he saw Abraham. And the Pharisees are like, how can you see Abraham? And they're playing on words here. You're not even 50. And you're saying you saw Abraham? And the whole point is, when he says, I am, that is the same exact reference back to this point in the Bible where God says, I am. So he is declaring himself God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And that is what got the Pharisees so mad. He was using that 
that name that he shouldn't be using. That's so sacred, right? So in here, he's saying, I am. He's basically saying, my name is I am. He's saying, I'm God. Um, and, uh, but in studying this, you actually have to go back to the beginning of 14 to understand that I am phrase. So if you look at the beginning of it, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now that phrase in, uh, actual translation is Aya Asher Aya, right? E-H-Y-E-H and then Asher and then Aya again. And that is his, basically, I was, I am, and I will be. Okay, that is the self-existent. Uh, it is um, first person, uh, which means to be. So he is the only one that can say that phrase, right? So I am who I am, God can say that. But when we talk about, you know, God, we say I am. So it's kind of like his name is I am, but he's the only one that says, I can say my name is, uh, let me say it this way. I'm the only one that can say my name is Matthew, right? But you could say his name is Matthew, right? And you're telling people that that's what my name is. So that's kind of the idea. Moses is saying God's name is I am. But when God speaks, he's the only one that says I am who I am, right? Uh, and you find this in Revelations, which we'll get to a little bit later. Uh, but it's first person. Uh, I am is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence. Uh, so only he can say that, right? Um, and when we look at this and look at the idea of God being eternal, uh, there's nothing, no promise, no nothing, again, that he cannot accomplish. Uh, he is eternally constant. He is always God. Uh, he stands ever-present and unchangeable right? uh, to accomplish and do what his plans and his will are. Uh, in Revelations, where it talks about you know, the Alpha and the Omega, those are in reference to the alphabet, and uh, Alpha and Omega is the first and last letter uh, of the alphabet, the Greek alphabet. And the idea here is that he's the first and the last, he's the beginning and the end, Right? He is, was, is, and will be. Right? So that is the idea of this, and we see it throughout. Uh, go to the book of John, starting in chapter 4. John chapter 4. And I just want you to see this, because studying this name, uh, this, little, this little thing was amazing when, when you look at this. Now, it's not necessarily... The same word I am as in Yahweh, but I want you to, to see when Jesus speaks, he says, I am. Okay, now it's not that special name, but I want you to, to see what he's calling himself. Right? So uh, in verse 426, he says, I am the Messiah. In chapter 6, verse we're going to be flipping some pages here. In chapter 6, 19 to 20, he says, do not be afraid, I am. Now that word is the same. Okay. Uh, 6.35, I am the bread of life. Chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. In 8.58, it says before Abraham was born, I am. 
and that is the reference directly to the Exodus reference. Chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. In verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 13, verse 13, I am the teacher and Lord. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. In chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And then in uh, chapter 6, 20, 8, 24, 8, 28, 13, 19, but 18, chapter 18, verses 6 to 8, he says, I am he. And that I am is reference to Yahweh, to, to God. So um, he's pretty much is saying who he is, wouldn't you think? Right now, this is Jesus in the human form, which, you know, again, you'll look at. But this is God, right? God is the bread of life. Uh, he's the light of the world. Uh, he's the good shepherd. Uh, he is the teacher, right? So um, these are all characteristics tied back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 to 15, um, and his character trait of being eternal, okay? Uh, because his plan to send Jesus was always in place um, from the beginning. So, all right? Hope I, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I love this one. God is eternal. And you know what the best thing is? Those that are in Christ will be eternal with him. That's amazing, right? I can't even comprehend that idea. Three big words that we all hear with God is omnipresent, omnipotent, and um, omniscient. I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail here, but Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There's nowhere we can go that God is not present. Okay? God is always present. Right? So the question that I got back when I first started studying this was, well, if God is present everywhere, then is God present in hell? So I started doing a little study, and, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to share what I figured out. And now I'm not going to die on this hill. All right. Um, if other people have different uh, ideas and maybe they studied it or will study it. Um, but the idea of presence, you have to understand uh, two verses that kind of talk about it. And people would say, well, they're contradicting. And they're actually not. All right? So 2 Thessalonians 1.9, um, if you turn there, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. I can't ever find Thessalonians. That's like the one book. Look at that. I found it. You say never, and it will happen, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay. So some, some believers believe that hell is the absence of God, but you have to understand what does the word absence mean? What are they defining as absence? So in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. The word presence here is face. Okay, they'll be shut out from his face. So physically, God is not going to be present. Right? They will not be able to, to see 
right? But it doesn't mean that he is not present in overseeing it, right? Because he's the control of all things. He holds all things together. So he is the one that is ultimately going to hold heaven and hell together, right? So he is going to be watching over it. It's just when it says absence or with shut out from the presence, it actually means his face. Uh, Revelations 14.10, if you go there, Revelation 14.10, says, He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Word again here, presence means face, so they're looking, right? The word here uh, is not contradicting when they say in their presence. Uh, the word here is that um, his omnipresence and sovereignty and providence is over. Because Colossians 1.17 says he holds all things together. So just as we cannot exist without God, neither can hell. Right? Uh, he is present there holding it together. So Revelation 14.10, when it refers to in the presence of, it actually means in the sight of, okay, if you translate it. So it's in the sight of, in the face, right? As God looks down on hell, that is what it means in the presence or in the sight of, right? Uh, the Greek used literally means before the land, uh, meaning that God can see it because it's always before him. Everything is always before him, right? Um, in other words, his fulfillment in the threat of Ezekiel 7.22 when it reads, I will turn my face from them. It's the exact opposite of the blessing in Numbers. So heaven, right? Um, Numbers 6.24-26, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Okay? So... I suppose you could say God's presence is twofold. First, he upholds everything by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. So hell would have no existence if God were not keeping it in existence. And secondly, hell is described as punishment and judgment, as not just a consequence, but punishment. So there will be awareness of those in hell of God's righteous disapproval, uh, his disapproval, his judgment, so-called, his punishment, is that uh, they will, uh, uh, his personal presence will not be present in hell. His beauty will not be seen or known. His fellowship will not be enjoyed. His relief and mercy will not be experienced. And if there's any presence of God felt in hell, it will be with the upholding force of his righteous judgment and wrath. And if you think of that wonderful uh, verse in the end of Revelation where all tears are wiped away, right? All pain is gone. That is heaven. Well, hell would be the opposite. So, um, and who holds both together? It's God. So he is going to be overseeing all of it. Okay. Um, any thoughts or anything from you guys? Any questions? No? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right, moving on. We'll do these next two pretty quick. So, omnipotent. 
Uh, now to him who is able to immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. God is more powerful. Right? He is all powerful. We know that. Right? Uh, I don't think we need to go into this uh, any further other than uh, when one proclaims God as omnipotent, they are proclaiming not only his ultimate power, but that he has, he's the source of all power. Okay. Um, and his power is unfathomable. Okay. Next we have uh, omniscient. Uh, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 uh, Basically, that sum this up, because God knows all things perfectly, he can't ever discover anything. He's never surprised and he's never amazed. <laughs> right? He knows past, present, and future. Right? Um, so I guess surprise birthday parties wouldn't be in order for, for Jesus, right? He probably knows that they're coming. <laughs> but as God, I mean, he knows it, right? So <laughs> he's just always there. Uh, I had this wonderful uh, little... Yeah, I can read it. So to understand this, uh, I'm going to read this little paragraph. God knows instantly and effortlessly... All matter and all matters. He knows all mind and every mind. He knows all spirit and all spirits. He knows all being and every being. He knows all creaturehood and all creatures. He knows uh, all law and every law. He knows all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feelings, all desires. He knows every unuttered secret. He knows all thrones and dominions. He knows all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth. He knows all motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven and hell. There's nothing he doesn't know, right? He knows it all. So when we think about, you know, searching for the, the knowledge and understanding and, and the wisdom of God, I mean, it's, it's unfathomable. So, uh, but these are three uh, key character traits, so... There you go. Question? Yes. So on omniscient, this is just, uh, if God is all-knowing, then how can he do something and then regret it? Because he's going to know he's going to regret it because he knows everything. Because like you see in Genesis, he created man, and a few chapters later, God saw that how wicked they were, and he regretted making them. Because he knew that he, that we would fall. I mean, that's the best answer. He knew what was coming, but he had a plan in place because he knew the future, right? He knew, he knew his promises of how to redeem man. So I think, yeah, he regretted it, but he also, it's kind of one of those emotions. It goes back to the emotions he has because there's a lot of time we regret stuff, right? But yet we keep pushing forward to that ultimate goal. So I think God's, God's the same way. He, he regretted it, but yet that regret, I think, is more sad. I'd have to look up what that word regret means um, to see the actual um, uh, text. Um, but I, I like to think that he was looking forward to the ultimate plan. Anybody have any thoughts on that? Because it does go with his characteristics. You know, it's, good question. Good question. So... We have just enough time, and I was actually going to go through and talk about uh, some of my favorite names of God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, uh, Yahweh, Yaira, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, because God is a provider. Uh, 
Yahweh Rafi, the Lord who heals, he's a healer. Uh, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord my banner. Uh, Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Uh, Kadosh Yisrael, he's the Holy One of Israel. Uh, and then, of course, we have the Lord is my rock, dwelling place, refuge, shield, fortress. So these are all characteristics of God, right, um, that we can look at. He's a consuming fire. He's a jealous God, right? Um, that's why back, you want to go full circle back to the little gods I talked about uh, in the very first uh, section. He's a jealous God, right? And that's why he tells them, don't intermarry. Don't get caught up in the, the nations around you. Because I'm a jealous God, and what's the first thing he does? With his own finger, he starts writing the Bible on the Ten Commandments. And what's his first commandment? Have no other gods before me, because he is a jealous God, and he is the only one worthy of it. So, um, but of course, I love this one to end on, because the Lord is my shepherd. And I, I, I just want to share one story that I shared with, with the teens that, on Wednesday. is uh, in Istanbul, Turkey... Uh, back in 2005, there was a news uh, program that went on uh, just to know how dumb sheep are. And you might remember this story once I start. Uh, there were some sheep herders. They decided to go get breakfast, so they went in. Uh, I think three or four of them. They're eating breakfast. They come out, and the sheep are gone. They're like, where'd the sheep go? So they start to look around, and they notice that all of them are on the bottom of a hill or a cliff. Uh, apparently... Uh, 1,500 sheep, right, just because the first couple sheep started to go off, the other sheep were dumb enough that they just followed the first sheep, okay? Uh, 450 died. The others uh, survived because of the soft landing, apparently. Um, so, yeah. So, but true story. True story. It's out there. I looked it up and, and saw it. But uh, another one just real quick. Uh, somebody, somebody uh, I don't know if it was one of the teens, they said that'd make a good t uh, toilet paper commercial, you know, <laughs> having that, but whatever. <laughs> um, so the second one is that if they have, a, like, if you have a, a muddy puddle right here and the pond 10 feet beyond it, if one sheep stops at this mud puddle, all the sheep will drink from that mud puddle instead of going 10 feet to the clean water. They, they just, they're, they're that dumb, right? But the best thing about sheep is that they know their shepherd's voice. And Jesus even says that. I know my sheep and they hear my voice. So um, so God is our shepherd, right? Um, he, he will leave the 99 to find the one and, and uh, we know his voice. Um, so that's pretty cool.